Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jack the Ripper stuff, to be honest. Really? The police photographer couldn't work for two years after it. This man has done something similar before and was almost certainly going to do it again, and that made it very, very important that we caught him. He was even named by his, uh, by his own mum. He's a delusional, paranoid schizophrenic, yeah, so, yeah. you know, you, you, should, you can't be surprised by anything he does. Hello, my name is Simon Toyne, and I kill people for a living. But don't worry, I'm not a psychopath, I'm actually a crime writer, and my murderous thoughts only go as far as the pages of my books, and the occasional podcast. I'm also the presenter of the CBS reality television series Written in Blood, and this is the companion podcast. Here you'll get additional content, behind-the-scenes insights, and much more detail about the cases we feature and the authors I meet. This is the fifth podcast in the series, and hopefully by now you've watched the television episode uh, for this particular podcast, and if not, I suggest you tune into that first, and then have a listen to this podcast afterwards. That way you'll avoid any spoilers and find out about the story in the same way that I did. In this episode, I'm joined by former detective-turned-crime writer Luke Delaney. I met him in London, a city he worked in for 17 years as a member of the Metropolitan Police. But the case he wanted to talk about was not one that he worked on. Nevertheless, it left a deep and lasting impression on him and helped kindle the flame of his own writing career. It's also one of those very rare crimes that creeps into the national conscience, becomes front-page news, and is still talked about decades after the crime happened. This is the case of Rachel Nickell who was brutally murdered in broad daylight on Wimbledon Common. It's a case I remember too, though I would learn much more about it and the killer as Luke walked me back through the details of it. But before I explore the story of Rachel Nickell and the long and twisty route towards finally catching her killer, let's first find out a little bit more about the man whose books they inspired, Luke Delaney. I was a detective in the Metropolitan Police for about 16 odd years and I was thoroughly enjoying it but I, I had a chance to move abroad and take a career break which I did do and while I was out there I took the chance to write a book which I've been wanting to do for years but just hadn't had the time whilst I was in, in the actual police. 
When I first start the book and planning it and stuff, the first thing I do is, is decide what sort of book it's going to be, and that's usually dead, that's usually dictated by what sort of baddie's going to be in the book. Is it going to be a bit of a sad loner? Is he going to be like a real, just like a died-in-the-wall bad guy, or is he going to be you know, mentally ill? So that kind of decides the flavour of the book. And then once I've got the character, I, I, from experience, will be able to work out what sort of crimes he would commit. And then I basically, yeah, I'll, I'll commit usually the first crime and that will set off. But throughout the book, what I'm doing is, I'm, 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 you're right, I'm kind of committing crimes in my head and writing them and then writing them down. And then that's the fun part, because then I have to work out how to solve them. That's really what I'm doing. I'm committing a crime and then I go, right, well, how am I going to solve it? Obviously, I know all the answers and whatever, but it's different when you're actually explaining in the book how you're solving it. So you have to actually solve it properly with proper evidence, with breaks and what have you. And uh, that's good. That's kind of, I think that's, that almost enables me to continue being a detective in many ways, which I really miss. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I do. I commit difficult crimes and then work out how the hell I'm going to solve them, just like you would in the, re in the real life. You know, when you're looking at it, you've got to sit there, right, how are we going to solve this? What have we got? What clues have we got? Where can we go? And I'll use those things to try and move the, the book to that final point where it all makes sense. Luke is one of those writers who doesn't feature much on the writer's circuit. You see, the life of a writer is uh, quite a solitary one. Uh, I spend an enormous amount of time hunched over a laptop, uh, putting words on a screen day after day, spending a lot of time in my head. It's not really the best way to meet people and expand your social network. So as writers, we tend to keep in contact through things like social media and only really occasionally meet up, possibly a few times a year at the various crime writing festivals. Things like um, Harrogate, which is probably the biggest, um, or this, I mean, there's loads across the country from Crime Fest in Bristol to bloody Scotland in Stirling and everywhere in between. These events give us a chance not only to chat to our readers and sign books, but also to catch up on the rest of our tribe, which basically means hanging around the bar with other writers at whatever hotel is hosting the festival we're at. But in all my time of going to these things, I have never once seen Luke there. There are also very few pictures of him online, and the ones that are there tend to be shadowy and quite mysterious. In fact, the only time I'd met him before shooting this show was at a private industry event held by HarperCollins, who published both of us. And it was at the end of an evening, we'd been talking to buyers from Tesco's and various things, and I probably talked to him for a grand total of three minutes. So, before we met up again to talk about the Rachel and the Kell murder, I was a little apprehensive about how the day would go. I wondered if he would be as guarded in person as he seemed to be online, and whether the natural caution he was displaying as an ex-detective who had put many dangerous people behind bars would carry over into our conversations about this notorious case. Happily, my concerns proved unfounded, and Luke turned out to be pretty much like every other crime writer I've ever met. He was affable, knowledgeable, passionate, dedicated to his work, and a brilliant storyteller. But the thing that makes Luke different from most of us is that, as well as talking the talk, he also walked the walk in his former life as a detective. Most people writing crime fiction who have been very successful with it don't have a police background, so you can do it, 
But for me, it was everything to have that real background because it meant that I don't really, I don't really do much research. But for me, it is pretty much everything. It's probably my, you know, unique selling point is that um, <clears throat> I just write straight off the cuff because I've done that. That was 17 years of research. And it's really important to me, not just not for the procedure side and, and what have you, but for me, the 17 years, what I've learned, which I really try and put into my books, which is, which is absolutely critical for me, is like the atmosphere, the atmosphere of investigation, how it really feels, you know, how it affects people, the cops, the victims, uh, the suspects, the atmosphere at the crime scenes. That was a big one for me. Stuff on the TV, where like, you know, you've got a dead body on the floor and people are sort of stepping over it, walking around, and no one's really that bothered. And it's like, you know, it's, it's just not like that. You know, it's quite disturbing. It doesn't have to be a really violent scene, just any sort of murder scene like that. It's, it's quite disturbing. It's just it's unpleasant. You don't just walk around cheerfully chatting away, stepping over the body like you don't. It's quite unnerving and, and, and not a nice place to be and it stays with you. Also, it's really important to me the 17 years I did it was for the characters. I've made, they're all made up. All my characters are made up, but they're, they're all, they're all, sort of, they're all um, a mixture of people that I have worked with. You know, they're like a collage of, of colleagues that I've put, I've put together. So they're quite real, you know. They're, they're this, they are, that is how, if you were to go into a CID office, or if you read one of my books and go into a CID office, you'd be like, oh yeah, that, that could be that character, that could be that character. So that was quite important to me as well, to get the characters of the police right, you know. Most crime writers have never worked as a police officer. And though you can research the procedure of an arrest or a police interview or whatever, you can never really properly think like a police officer unless you've actually been one. And so the fact that Luke was a detective for 17 years, um, or a police officer for 17 years, gives an authenticity to his books that you can't really fake. And it made me particularly interested in what new light he would shine on a case that I thought I knew pretty well. The murder of Rachel Nickell is up there with the most well-known crimes in modern UK criminal history. And yet the name of her killer is much less well-known. Whereas usually it's the other way around. I mean, if you think of other infamous cases like uh, the Yorkshire Ripper or the Moors Murderers, well, I bet you know the Ripper's real name is Peter Sutcliffe and the Moors Murderers were Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. But can you name all the people they killed? Probably not. In fact, can you name any of them? You see, that's exactly my point. You see, if you live in the UK and were old enough to remember the Rachel Nickell case, you will instantly recognise her name. So now, here's my second question. Do you know the name of her killer? You see, you probably don't. There may be a name popping into your head right now, and that name is most probably Colin Stagg, because he was the prime suspect in the case for a long time. But he did not kill her, and that was absolutely proven beyond doubt. The person who actually did kill Rachel Nickell was a man called Robert Knapper. And she was not the only woman he killed. So why don't we know his name? As you'll have seen in the TV programme, Luke took me not only to Wimbledon Common, where Rachel was killed, but also across London to Plumstead Common, where Knapper killed two more people, Samantha Bissett and her four-year-old daughter, Jasmine. 
The standard definition of a serial killer is someone who has killed three or more people over a period of more than one month. So that means Robert Napper definitely qualifies. And for whatever dark reasons, we are fascinated by serial killers, and so is the press. So how come it's Rachel McKell's name that we know and not Robert Napper's? Is it because Rachel was so beautiful and that picture of her smiling on the cover of every newspaper was so tragic in light of why we were all seeing it? Was it because her two-year-old son, Alex, was present when she was killed, which added to the tragic narrative of this particular murder? Perhaps it was because the police, the press, and then the public were given the wrong name of her suspected killer. And when we found out it wasn't him after all, it was too late. The role of the villain had already been filled. So when the real villain stepped out of the shadows, we had no outrage left to vent. Or maybe it's because the case remained unsolved for so long, so that when Napa's name finally was known and added to the story, we'd already kind of moved on in our minds and concerned ourselves with other tragedies. For me, I would say it's all of these things. I think we process everything in terms of stories, whether they're true or works of fiction. And when that story is told, we find it hard to go back and rewrite them. So in this case, we had something that read like a perfect dark fairy tale. Beautiful golden victim with tragic child as witness, monster emerging from the woods, and a likely suspect to aim all our hate at. Now that's a perfect story. So then finding out the suspect was innocent and the monster was still out there and then much later was ultimately caught, but not because he murdered the golden princess, but because he murdered someone else and got sloppy covering up the evidence of that crime. And that's much less of a perfect story. That's my theory anyway, but this is uh, Luke's take on it. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It was front page stuff for almost two years, that case was. So I think everyone was so aware of it. But also I'd recently sort of moved into the CID as well. And I wasn't living too far away from Wimbledon Common at the same time. So I, I just, it had sort of, I find it extra spooky almost that it had happened, you know, probably about half a mile from where I lived and what have you. Robert Napper who did it, he's such a rare animal. You know, we hadn't had anything like that since We'd had the Yorkshire Ripper, you know, 20 odd years before that or something. But even he was nothing compared to, compared to Napa. I think the only person who compares to Napa really with what he did at the crime scenes was, was, was Jack the Ripper. And obviously people still talk about Jack the Ripper. That is what initially made the, that case stand out so much because it, it was a standout case. It was a genuine case that, you know, we hadn't had anything like that since Jack the Ripper, a hundred years or something, I would say. And Rachel was there, as we all know, she was so nice looking and she was out and full of life and she was with a little boy. And it was just, it was just a shocking sort of case. And then as it all started to unfold, when Samantha and Jasmine Bissett then got killed. And uh, at that point, I, 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 I wasn't on that team, which I must stress, but I had a couple of friends on it who were detectives and, you know, we'd meet for a beer and we'd talk about it. And it was that point that they started saying to me, you know, we have our suspicions. Whoever's done this also, also killed Rachel and Nikel. In the film, we got to hear from the pathologist, Dr Richard Shepherd, who talks about the two murders and the evidence he gathered from the victims. Now, to be honest, we could have included three or four times the amount of content from Richard because he had so much insight into the role of a pathologist and the sort of information you can gather. So we thought we'd put a bit more of him here so you could hear some of the stuff that we couldn't fit into the show. Forensic pathology is the subject of medicine that relates to the law. We're dealing with people who've been injured and particularly with people who've died as a result of injuries or some other unnatural cause of death. The analysis of a body can tell you so many things, and we're looking at multiple layers when we do our examination. We start by looking at the external surfaces, so we're looking for injuries, we're looking for any signs of disease that might be visible externally. Internally, once again, we're looking for injuries, and we're looking for disease processes that may have contributed to death or actually caused death. The forensic pathologist has to work on many levels. We have to understand what has been found at the scene of a death, we have to understand what we can see on the body, but we also look under the microscope at the individual cells, and sometimes that can give an answer that we haven't identified elsewhere. Every case is different, every case has the potential to throw a surprise, but there is a saying in medicine that common things occur commonly, and generally speaking, someone who's been stabbed in the chest or shot in the head has died as a result of that, but not always. And that's why we have to look and make sure we understand everything, not just those simple visual clues. 
I can remember this case particularly clearly because of the way it developed, because of its unique nature. It was clear that this was a big case because there were police officers blocking exits to the Wimbledon Park as I drove up. A dead woman lying in a glade in a place in Wimbledon that I'd walked with her son sat in the back of an ambulance with one of my colleagues who was looking after him. The first things you start looking for are the external. You start away from the body and you sort of spiral in because of the science that's going to be present. Uh, and so the first things we were documenting were where the areas of blood staining were in relation to Nick Rachel's body. Then we'd move up close and it was obvious that she'd been stabbed multiple times. It was very clear that she'd also been sexually assaulted. And so the number of things immediately kick in at that point. We need to take the sexual swabs to get the DNA to try and link it to a perpetrator. But there are other things. What has happened in this scene? It's not simple. It's not a straightforward stabbing. Clearly, she has moved. There's been action and movement within this scene. What does that tell us? How can we understand what it means to the perpetrator to have done this? For me, it was a very different crime scene. It suggested someone who had clear sexual fantasies that were being played out at this scene, not just because there was evidence of a sexual assault, but the way she had been murdered. And my training taught me that this was unusual. So it was a different crime scene. It was a special crime scene because this man had probably done this before and was almost certainly going to do it again. And that made it very, very important that we caught him. Now, the thing that particularly struck me about this interview was the way Richard described the level of violence in this case. It was pretty unprecedented, and most people would be horrified to think about it, let alone look at it. But for Richard, that horrible scene gave him the opportunity to do what he'd trained to do, to analyse it, to read it, to listen to what it was telling him about the killer and his motives, and ultimately, to get the evidence that might catch him. One thing we didn't include in the film was detail of the sexual offences Napper committed on the murder victims. And we're not going to go into graphic detail here uh, either, but I do want to explore something and I'll let Richard set it up. The common link in a, in a rape murder is often semen. Now we would stretch it to DNA and do it all sorts of other ways, but th that time it was to the identification of semen. There was no semen. There was no evidence to make that link to anyone who might be approached or considered crucial. But it fitted the pattern, the pattern of progression that I would have expected to see. And when you look at the number of sexual, violent sexual assaults, violent sexual murders, there aren't that many that are stranger related. Usually the people that kill you are your relatives. And so Samantha was different, and it stood out like a beacon, as Rachel and Nikel did. And simply because it stood out, it was easy to link the two, for me, but of course almost impossible for the police to make a definite link, and that's why they struggled. So what does that mean exactly? Why did he sexually abuse these women, but not sexually assault them? 
What's his motive? Is it that he's sexually twisted or deficient in some way and the only way he can get close to a woman is to kill her first? After all, his friend did say he didn't show any interest at all in girls at school. Or is it that he's so forensically aware that he does commit the act of rape, but only so far as to not leave the evidence that will catch him? I'm not so sure about that particular theory because the frenzied pitch of the attack suggests that this is not a man in control of his actions, so I doubt very much that he would be able to stop himself from doing something because some small rational part of his mind was telling him not to. I think it's much more simple than that. I think these are definitely sexual crimes, but if you look at the underlying motive of most rapes, they're not actually about sex. What they're really about is power. Raping someone is about violent domination. It's about humiliating someone else in order to make yourself feel more powerful. And the sex element of most sex crimes is only part of it. Napier was clearly a very damaged individual with limited social skills and very low self-esteem. He was kind of, you know, the classic weirdo who creeped everyone out at school, particularly the girls. So I think he killed these women not so he could achieve some kind of biological sexual release. I think he simply killed them to make himself feel better and more powerful. But that's only my theory, and as in every story, there are many possible endings and interpretations. And on this particular podcast, I want to give the last word on the subject to Alex. Now, Alex is Rachel Nickel's son, the one who was two years old when he witnessed his mother's murder. And the ending he has chosen to give this story is truly remarkable, and I think it's one that not many of us would have arrived at. When we interviewed him for the show, he talked to us about how he'd written a book about living with the memory of his mother's murder, about his experience of growing up, and also, remarkably, his journey towards forgiveness. For me, uh, writing my book and sharing my story wasn't something that I planned. It was simply me reaching a stage in my life where I begin to understand and, and see how all the pieces of the puzzle connected in my life, the influence that we had in drawing this event into our lives, and uh, the lessons that I've learned as a consequence, you know, the journey to forgiveness and uh, you know, making that, that transition, which I believe we're all here to make. We all have difficulties, we all have our own sets of challenges which we face. And um, I believe that when you embrace those difficulties, those are the things that propel you forward and allow you to make that transition from darkness to light, you know. So it was me wanting to give back for the help I've received over the years. Um, you know, of course I had some difficult experiences growing up, but at the same time I've received lots of blessings and lots of help from, from people all throughout my life. So I wanted to share my story as a way of giving back and inspiring others in their journey through life. Forgiveness is really something that's for yourself, you know. It's got nothing to do with condoning a person's actions, but realizing that forgiveness is for yourself so that you can let go of that um, unnecessary negativity within yourself. And really for me, I wouldn't change anything. You know, there's no one whose shoes I'd rather be standing in than my own because all these experiences that I've lived through 
have made me the person I am today, you know, and there's no one else who I'd rather be than myself. I think um, my mother was a, a big advocate of, you know, the charity begins at home and, and, and sharing that love, you know, with the people that are close to you, the people that are important to you. You know, really love is the thing that um, has the power to change all the difficulties and all the negativity that we have in today's world. This podcast is the accompaniment to the TV series Written in Blood, which airs on Sunday nights on CBS Reality at 10pm. Please feel free to tweet me any comments or questions you have at Simon Toyne, all lowercase or one word, on Twitter. Please use the hashtag written in blood, all one word, or contact me on my Facebook author page, which is very easy to find because there aren't many Simon Toyne authors around. Please do contact me because it's always great to hear from you. Next week, I'm in Leeds with Ellie Griffiths, author of the Dr. Ruth Galloway series. Uh, that podcast will be live uh, following the program, or you can hit subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. That's it from me, so thanks for listening. I'm Simon Toyne, and this has been the Written in Blood podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.